Christ has triumphed over the grave. The stone was rolled away. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. He is risen from the dead. Though he knew no sin, he took sin. In his death, he took death. Mocked and despised, he took shame. Through his broken body, he took our brokenness. He took it all. Everything that is upside down, broken and just plain wrong, he took it to the grave, to hell. And just when evil thought he had won, the ground shook, the seal broke, the veil tore, and the stone was rolled away. Christ defeated sin. Christ conquered death. Christ overcame shame. Christ restored our brokenness. Christ has triumphed over the grave. So crown him with many crowns. The Lamb of God is seated upon the throne. Awake your souls and sing to our matchless King. Christ is magnified. Christ is glorified. Christ triumphed over the grave. I want to start by suggesting that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. Some of you have been given a story. Some of you feel like you chose this story. Some of you may not even be aware of the fact that you have a story. It's so subconscious, but it's what you're living. It's the way you are seeing the world. Everybody has a story, and stories matter for a couple of reasons. Well, they matter for a ton of reasons, probably. Here's two. Story helps us make sense of the world, and a story helps us navigate our way through it. In other words, how to see the world and how to navigate through the world is determined by the story that we're living, by the, by the, the story we choose to believe. Unfortunately, our, our, our culture is suffering from some very popular but untrue and very unhelpful stories. And you'll recognize these. To a degree, we probably, all of us, have bought into two or three of these. There's the success story. That's the he who dies with the most toys wins approach. Get into this college, the best college, any means possible. Succeed at all costs, or at least appear to succeed. That's a success story. There's the nation story. There's us and there's them. We're good and they're not as good. We're full. Nationalism is this dominant story being shared across the world as human movement is at this massive peak. It's the nation story. There's the sensuality story in which everything is sexualized. Value is connected to beauty as you, de- as you describe it, as you define it. This is an age-old story, but it's being embraced by children at a younger and younger age, the sensuality story. There's the humanist story, which many of us have been educated in. The humanist story says we need more education. We need to discover more scientific discoveries. Peace and happiness are possible. We have it within ourselves. We just need to come together and embrace our collective human goodness, and we can solve all the problems. Then there's the there is no story story, which is where you arrive when the humanist story runs out of gas, which it does, <laughs> right? Where uh, it's, 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 uh, there's nothing. Nothing's really meaningful. It's, in philosophy, it's called nihilism. It's all pointless anyway. Just, just do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. 
nothing matters. There's the fragmented story, which is where life is seen as a collection of unrelated parts. But because they are unrelated, there's no integration, there's no cohesion, there's no connection, there's no core truth, there's no governing principle. And so, one of the ways this plays out is your professional life is totally separated from your personal life, and that's seen as normal. And so, like, what do you do? You're one person there, and you're a totally different person here? How does that work? How is that in any way whole or healthy? It's the fragmented story. And then there's the damaged story where wounds become our identity. We are tempted to see ourselves as victims. The story is about relational wounds. It's about sexual dysfunction. It's about physical ailments. It's about our professional problems. We complain a lot. Nothing is fair. It's the damaged story. And there's some truth to the damaged story, of course, because there's many of us have actually been disappointed and we've actually been betrayed or we've been hurt. In fact, there's truth to all of these stories. All of these stories touches just a little bit on a kernel of truth and then kind of t- runs and twists with it. And, and that's why they've hung around for so long. And that's why we embrace many of them to some degree. Everybody has a story. Whether we realize it or not, we are living a story. What do I mean by that? We have a lens through which we see the world and a map with which we try to navigate it, try to figure it out. The problem is that most of the dominant stories are ultimately false, and therefore they are unhelpful. They're unhelpful. They don't pack the punch. They don't stand up to the disappointment or the reality of life. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about embracing a better story, about embracing a better story. Today is Easter Sunday. It's the single most important day in the Christian faith because today is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection many would claim is the grand narrative. It is the story that overrides all other stories. It is the grand narrative. It is also the great narrative. In other words, it is the most powerful narrative, the most powerful of all stories. There are many reasons this story is the most powerful, the greatest, the grand story. But perhaps the most important is that the resurrection story, in the resurrection story, the ultimate problem, the ultimate adversity, the real bad guy, the actual problem hiding in the shadows of all the other stories is finally vanquished is finally defeated in the resurrection story. The story that we're celebrating today is the story of the resurrection in which Jesus, who was killed on a Friday on a Roman execution device, is raised back to life on Sunday morning. The resurrection is the greatest of all stories because it is the story of Jesus' triumph over death. Over death. Why is that such a big deal? What is the power of death? Why is the church careful to say, not just from a biological standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, that Christ triumphed over death? What is that power that is held within death? It is its permanence. It is its permanence, the permanence of death. Death is the undisputed champion. It is the permanent end of every story that's ever been told. Every other story is an attempt at some degree to try to deal with the problem of death. The success story, the sensuality story, the nation story, they're all trying to deal with this, this like looming problem, this enemy in the shadows. Well, how then does Jesus deal with it? How does Jesus overcome this power which has forever had the last word? Jesus, Jesus introduces a superior power that renders the old power obsolete. 
And it, it, it like changes the game, right? By turning death, which had forever been the period at the end of the sentence into a comma somewhere in the middle of it, right? Changing the paradigm forever. So forever, in other words, it has been, this has been the story, birth, life, death, period, end of sentence. But then with the resurrection, the whole paradigm gets changed, and now the story is birth, life, death, comma, resurrection. Literally changes the game. If you take away death's power, if you take away the permanence of death, then you turn ultimate defeat into a momentary setback. You turn the end of life into an afternoon nap. It totally changes the game. Paul and the early Christians regularly refer to death as sleep. Did you know that? As something temporary from which they expect to wake up and somewhat refreshed at that, actually, right? Freed from the, the, the bonds of this human body, now in a new and resurrected one. And the, so, so why did Christians refer to death as sleep? Because Jesus triumphs over death. So what used to be the end of the story is no longer the end of the story. The final blow of that triumph is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where it's like settled. Now, many of you have heard this, haven't you? This sounding pretty familiar to most of you here, I would imagine. You know this story, at least in concept, you know this story. Most in our culture have heard at least to some level this story. Many of you expected me to say this today. And that's okay, that's good, it's good and right that we should be retelling this story and re-celebrating this story together this morning. But I do want to push it further. You know I want to push it further this morning. Uh, make a couple of observations, I think, this morning in the form of questions. And, and the reason I want to do this is because, um, because for all our familiarity with the story of the resurrection, like the, the challenge to me is that it, it remains very limited in its effect on the way we live. It remains pretty limited um, in, in regard to how, we how fully we embrace our lives, our stories, as part of this bigger story of the resurrection. In other words, many of us are not seeing the world through the lens of the resurrection. And many of us are not using the story of the resurrection as our basic fundamental map with which to navigate life. Why is that? point out two reasons in the form of questions. Here's the first. I'm just wondering, has Jesus' triumph over death become for you a reality which makes a difference or comes into play at the point of death or before? Few of us even think about death. Fewer of us expect it to happen anytime soon. And if the story of the resurrection has been effectively shelved in the garage like that freeze-dried food that you bought like in 1999, just in case the Y2K people were right. You haven't touched it in 20 years. It's effectively irrelevant to your life. If the story of the resurrection has been effectively shelved for some future unknown date, at which point maybe you'll actually need it because you'll be dying, then it doesn't make a difference in your day-to-day, -day, does it? The power of the biblical claim that Jesus triumphs over death is not limited to the experience of death. It includes everything leading up to and including death, right? 
Resurrection matters now because it applies to every part of our life. Oh, and death also. For years, we've had an REI credit card. Um, And so every March, you earn credits as you spend money because it's the American way. And uh, every March, we get a letter from REI telling us how much money we get to spend at REI. And it's really been a fun thing. This is like, it's the only good store. It's the only store worth shopping in, in my opinion. (laughs) Keep me out of stores. But I love REI. So it's super fun. So we get this uh, dividend. And this has been our pattern. There's five of us in our family. So we'll take the dividend. We'll split it five ways. And then we go have fun at REI. And we get some things that are cool. And when the kids were really, really little, when we started doing this, they would say, we would say, here's the, here's the money in, that you have. And they would say, can I buy this? And we would say, yes, you can, because the amount of money you have to spend is more than what this costs. And then they'd come up again. Well, can I buy this? And we'd say, yes, you can, because the amount of money that you have to spend is more than what that costs. That didn't last long. Now they're older and they can do math. And so now they just ask one question, right? What's the max? That's what they ask. <laughs> How much do I have, right? Because they know... Given the maximum, they know what else is covered by that amount. The resurrection fails to impact our life if we live as though it only impacts part of it. It makes even less impact on our life if that part of our life which the resurrection impacts is the very end. And we're not even there yet. The resurrection fails to guide us through this life's smaller, everyday decisions if we've somehow relegated the power of the resurrection to this big, what happens when I die question. In other words, many people are willing to trust the story of the resurrection with their death, but they're not willing to trust the story of the resurrection with their life. In your notes, I've got a a quote from the Apostle Paul in a letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus. This is what he says. He's talking about the, quote, incomparably great power for us who believe, the incomparably great power available for us who believe. And he says that this power that we have access to is the same power God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power, Paul's saying. The power of the resurrection is the same power you and I have access to because of Christ here and now. So Jesus' triumph matters now and at the hour of our death, but it's the now part that we have a lot of room to grow in. It's the now part that could really make a difference in the way our stories are being lived out. It's the now part that we need to embrace. We need to embrace the resurrection story right here and right now. Jesus triumphed over death. If that's true, he can handle my problems because they're all smaller than death right now. If Jesus triumphed over death, he can handle the stuff that's going on at home. He can handle the stuff that's going on at work. He can handle the stuff that's going on at school. He can handle that. If the, resur- if the resurrection narrative gives me hope as I face my death, well, resurrection should give me hope as I face the challenges of my life. Like, let's not limit it. This is the same power, Paul says, available to us. So the power of the resurrection, this resurrection story, this should fundamentally shift my day-to-day relationships it should address the way uh, that, I, um, that I handle this challenge of just ongoing crazy busyness, constant worry, feelings of unworthiness. If Jesus overcomes death, then he can overcome my past mistakes. I don't have to be dict- or, uh, defined by those mistakes anymore. That's the old narrative. There is a new power which has rendered that old narrative obsolete. 
It's been replaced, that old narrative, by a truer, more helpful, and more powerful story. What's the story? It's the story of the resurrection. That's what I need to embrace. If Jesus can overcome death, then he can overcome pain, and he can overcome suffering. Even the suffering that I've experienced and you've experienced, even if it's significant, like the loss of a loved one, or devastating abuse, or betrayal. I'm not saying that these things are erased or taken away. I'm saying Jesus can triumph over those things because his power is greater than the power therein. The power that has held us down, the power that has robbed our confidence, he's greater than that power. He's greater than the power that has made us afraid. Jesus defeated death. That's the max. What's the max? Death, he defeated it. Like that's covered and anything less than that. That means you can trust him with death and anything less than that. You can trust him with your pain. You can trust him with your past and your present, not just your your someday way ahead future, but every detail of your life here and now. It's powerful. So we're talking about backing up big picture again. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus as the grand narrative, as the big story. And I'm wondering if the, res- the story of the resurrection could make a more thorough impact on our here and now if we embraced it as a story for our life, not just for our death. That's what I'm wondering. That's the first question. Here's the second question. I'll ask this a few ways. Has, second question, ready? Has Jesus' triumph over death failed to deeply impact our lives because we see his victory as just another one of a myriad of other victories? Because we fail to notice the ways in which Jesus' victory is different from the victories that our culture recognizes and celebrates all the time. In other words, have we missed the power of his triumph because we've missed or we've ignored his method Is the power limited because we've missed or ignored the the method of his victory? For instance, could it be that we have not been shaped by Jesus' victory because we love the idea of winning, but we avoid suffering at all costs, but Jesus' victory came through suffering? That's what I'm saying. Another example. Could it be that our idea of success has been shaped by all these inferior stories, and so now we're convinced that happiness is the goal and comfort is a right and the most important thing in the world is what I want. And so our idea of winning has nothing to do with sacrifice and yet Jesus wins by sacrificing everything for those he loves. I wonder if the reason so many in our country will acknowledge Jesus' resurrection today, but will not be shaped by it, we will not be changed by it, is because we incorrectly read into the story of the resurrection our own values. And we say, oh, that's just a spiritual version of, of the way I like to win. I wonder if we don't often experience the power of Jesus' triumph because we want Jesus' victory to work like so many of the other victories that we cheer for all of the time. Winning by pushing the other person down. Winning by uh, demonstrating the inferior character of the person against whom you're arguing. Winning by disrespecting. Conquering by asserting the power of our position. Winning by bringing greater wealth to the problem. Winning by showing up with a bigger army. Question, have we misunderstood the method of Jesus' triumph? And in missing the method, have we missed a critical component of his power? 
The radical claim of the early followers of Jesus is that Jesus triumphed over death. The even more radical claim of Jesus' early followers is that he triumphed over death by submitting to it, by succumbing to it, by enduring it, that he emptied death of its power by taking death's best shot, by dying and by dying on a cross at that. In other words, what Jesus did was radical. The way he did it was even more radical. Doesn't that seem radical to us? You, wait, you're, gonna, you're, you're winning by dying? That looks like losing to me. That always looks like losing. When I see somebody dying, I'm like, it doesn't look like they're winning right now. It would have sounded even more radical to those hearing this claim in first century Roman or first century territories under Roman control. I wonder if we've stripped the resurrection from its practical power by separating the glorious victory of Sunday morning from the crucifixion of Friday night and the apparent failure of the crucifixion. In other words, I wonder if we're trying to win the wrong way. I wonder if we're trying to win the wrong way, and that's why the resurrection story It's not connecting somehow on a practical level. I wonder if we're missing the brilliant power of Jesus' victory because the tools we're trying to use to win are the very tools Jesus proved to be impotent in the end. He's like, no, let me show you. That's not the way winning actually happens. All right, let me wrap this up by telling you about this great word in the Bible called triumph. It's the word triumph. At, At the time of Jesus, the world's superpower was Rome. The Roman Empire, one of the biggest, most expansive empires in the history of the world. At one time, in fact, one out of every four human beings on the planet lived in an area that was controlled by Rome. And one of the doctrines of the Roman Empire was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the the, um, idea was this, like the propaganda was this, if you're under Roman control, there will be peace. But the fuller story, like the underbelly to that, was that, yeah, because anyone who speaks up against Rome gets whacked, right? Gets destroyed right away. So we keep the peace in Rome by doing away with anybody who will uh, be foolish enough to stand up to Rome. People knew how this worked. They'd seen it with their own eyes. If they hadn't, they've heard about it. And the experience that I'm talking about was called a triumph. It's called a triumph. The final piece of a Roman conquest of a new village or a new state was the triumph. The Greek word is thriambuo, thriambuo, it's translated in English to triumph. The word is used only twice in the New Testament because it refers specifically to this. This event, the main event of a triumph was the triumphal procession. It was something like a victory parade, like when the Patriots won the Super Bowl in in February, and then they just went on these series of parades through these downtown streets, and there's confetti and photographs, and people are cheering. Except being a Roman parade, you knew it had to include a whole lot of violence and blood, because they just seemed to glory in, in that. So here's how it would work. The triumphator, like the conquering general, he'd be smack in the middle of the parade. He'd be like the focal point. Up in front of him would be sacrificial animals. They're going to eat them later. Would be all of the the loot that they had just gathered from whatever town they just smashed. Like the valuable stuff, whatever. The statues, the art, the gold, whatever. And then behind the triumphing general, bound, exposed, 
paraded through the streets for all to see were the people that had just been conquered. The people who had just been conquered. And they would be marched through the streets as a public spectacle. And then they would, as the dramatic climax of the parade, be executed before the crowd. So a triumph in ancient Rome in the time of Jesus and two generations following was a graphic demonstration in which the winner was seen to be all-powerful and the loser was clearly and finally powerless, not just defeated, but actually utterly destroyed. So you hear the word triumph in Jesus' day. You read Paul's letter to the Colossians in like whenever, 70 AD. You're thinking violent demonstration of absolute power. And then, here is Paul writing this letter to this church from jail. He's in jail because he's been proclaiming that Jesus is the king. Caesar's not. Jesus is the son of God. Caesar's not. Jesus is the real Lord. Caesar's not. So they put Paul in jail. So he starts writing letters. And here in this letter, at the end of the soaring passage in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul makes this radical claim. He refers to Jesus' death on the cross as Jesus' triumph. As his triumph, think that whole Roman scene, this graphic demonstration in which the winner, who according to Paul is Jesus, is seen as the most powerful, and the loser, who according to Paul is the powers of evil, would be clearly and finally rendered powerless and not just defeated, but utterly destroyed. This is what Paul actually writes. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, or made an example out of them, by triumphing over them by the cross. What? People would be like, what did you say? So the event Paul is referring to, in case you're not clear on it, is that when Jesus is beaten and Jesus is bound, and Jesus is paraded through the streets by Roman soldiers, and then Jesus is stripped of his clothes, and then he's exposed, and he's killed on a cross. That's what everybody saw happen to Jesus. It looked a lot like a Roman triumph. It looked like the end of uh, the, the road for Jesus, the total devastation of Jesus and his message, and Paul says that what's actually happening there is Jesus is winning that Jesus is winning, that Jesus is triumphing. He uses that word. What in the world is he triumphing over? Paul says, the powers and the authorities. He's not talking about the soldiers. He's not even talking about Rome. He's talking about the evil powers behind violence, behind greed, behind systemic oppression. He's talking about selfishness, which has long infected humanity. He's talking about the voice inside of you. It says, if that guy's going to hit me, I'm going to hit him back. I'm going to hit him back harder. If he's going to insult me, I'm going to insult him back. I'm going to insult him back harder. He's talking about revenge. He's talking about long-held tools of fear and control. He's talking about false stories, like the success story in terms of possessions, like seeing freedom in terms of being in charge, like seeing a person's value in terms of their appearance or what they can do for me. And Paul is making this radical claim that Jesus is disarming evil that he is parading evil through the streets, that he is exposing evil as the sham that it is, making a public spectacle out of how powerless evil is, and that Jesus is ultimately triumphing over evil on the cross. Here's a, here's a paraphrase of that verse out of Colossians, a little more street level. The message, 
He stripped, Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe from their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. And we might say, Paul, you are crazy. You are cr- that is clearly Jesus is defeated on the cross. Clearly Jesus is losing there. I mean, that's what looks like is happening there. How in the world, Paul, can you look at Jesus on the cross and say he is triumphing there? Do you know how he can say that? Do you know how he can like honestly look you right in the eye and say, Jesus triumphs over sin and death on the cross. Do you know how he can say that? The resurrection. That's how he can say that. Because he's embraced the story of the resurrection. And that, that changes the whole story, right? That reveals the actual truth of what is happening. It's not new as in never heard of this before. It's new as in we never saw this truth before, but it has been there the whole time. It's just been covered up. The resurrection tells the true story. Without the resurrection, it does not look like Jesus triumphs. It looks like he is defeated. But the resurrection reveals the truth. The resurrection reveals the limited power of violence, the limited power of pride, the limited power of greed. The resurrection reveals the emptiness of so-called victories that are based on oppressing other people, controlling, devaluing others. It's the resurrection story. It's the resurrection story. Friends, everybody has a story. Everyone has a story. Each of us embrace a story that becomes a lens through which we see life and the world, and then it becomes this set of values, this map that we use to navigate our lives. And we need a true story. We need a helpful story. And we need a story that's powerful enough to stand up to real life problems, the stuff that pulls us down. We need a story that is powerful enough to give us real hope, real hope in the face of the kinds of things that I know are affecting us together. We need a story that is a compelling alternative to the many anemic and counterfeit stories that are being told all over the place in our culture, but they're not working. They're not working. So I urge you, friends, to embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ as your story, as the lens through which you see your life. This is how I understand things. And and I urge you, to embrace the resurrection of Jesus as the map, as the guide to navigate your life towards meaning and purpose and significance and victory. That comes through the cross. Not like other victories, but the victory that comes through things like suffering, through things like sacrifice, the victory that comes through things like love. Amen? Next couple weeks, I'm stoked about this series. I'm going to break it real down to the practical, and we're going to talk about how the story of the resurrection impacts daily life, how it overcomes things like disease, how the resurrection overcomes the power of discouragement and depression, how the power of the resurrection overcomes feelings of unworthiness, how embracing the story of the resurrection is the only hope we have in pushing back this frantic busyness that is just overwhelming us, 
And I hope you're going to join us. It's going to be really hopeful, and it's going to be really practical. So may the reality of this day, friends, may the reality of the resurrection, may it become your story. May it become your lens through which you see your life, and may it become the map with which you navigate uh, the things that are all around you and before you. Jesus has triumphed over the grave. Amen? He is risen. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's embrace this with our whole hearts. Lord, I pray for grace to embrace, whether for the first time or again today, as we begin again today, this story of your triumph over the grave. I pray for hope because nothing is more powerful than your resurrection. And I pray for courage to pursue victory according to your methods, not the methods that are being demonstrated all around us, that we would embrace sacrifice and love and even suffering because this is the way you triumph. This is the way life overcomes death. And I pray for your help in Jesus' name, amen.